Damn it, Deep Space Nine. Why? Why do you do this to me? I don't want to talk about real-life issues. I don't want to talk about controversies or problems. I want to talk about ray guns and explosions. Okay, that's, that's actually not true. But <laughs> I don't want to talk about religion. I'm going to have to. I want to make something very clear. I just want this definition to be nice and upfront. I have always, well, I shouldn't say always, but as long as I can remember, I have made a nice, big, clear distinction between religious and spiritual, okay? Religious is an organization. Spiritual is a set of personal beliefs. There's obviously some crossover between these two things, but I want to make it clear, when I'm referring to a religion, I'm referring to an organization. When I'm referring to religious, I'm referring to something that is an adjective form of said organization. Now... I will do my best to police myself on this one, but if I say spiritual, I am starting to refer to things like personal beliefs and whatnot. Now, that being said, I'm going to say something incredibly controversial that's going to make everyone in chat just fly away and hate me forever. I'm cool with different spiritual beliefs. I know. I'm, I'm terribly sorry. But I'm serious. You believe you, as long as it doesn't make you do horribly evil things... Or horrible things in general. Okay. <laughs> you, you, you secretly believe that there's this, this guy named Kafka who bounces around and tells you to... Okay, whatever. I mean, as long as that's your thing. Again, within reason. There's always a little bit of moderation involved in there. But as long as you're just doing your own thing or believing your own thing, I don't care. I'm cool with that. We, you know, we, God's sakes, do I need to pull the glasses out? Okay. Huh? We're cool? Huh? Religions get a little murkier. Because, as I just defined, a religion is an organization. And an organization, by natural definition, involves politics. And politics are a very murky issue. Now... This is a good episode. Let me just go ahead and say this. This is probably my second favorite episode. Actually, there's no probably. This is my second favorite episode of Season 1 DS9. And in fact, the only reason it's that low is because Duet just completely knocks it out of the park. Um, I do want to say one thing really quick. As I've said before, I abandoned Deep Space Nine back in uh, Move Along Home. And then I came back later after this episode, and then went back and started re-watching stuff. I mention that, though, because this episode is when I fell in love with Deep Space Nine. And I say that even admitting that the previous episode, Duet, was actually better. But this was a Deep Space Nine episode. There's so much that this episode did that was fairly unique to Deep Space Nine, that was integral to Deep Space Nine. It took a serious real issue and examined it, but also did so in a way that specifically and deliberately moved the status quo forward and was integrally tied in to a long-standing thread arc, in this case, of the Bajoran people and the prophets in general, and even Sisko and his character arc. So this kind of thing is the kind of thing that was fairly unique to Deep Space Nine, part of that whole setting continuity station thing that we've talked about before. I also love how this episode basically tricks you into thinking that there is an A plot and a B plot, when there actually isn't. It's actually the same plot. It's just the two start in completely different directions and progress parallel to each other until they finally merge. Very good writing on that part. Um, I do know that Ira Stephen Bear was involved in the writing and scripting of this episode. I don't know how much of that is his influence, but I do know that Iron Stephen Bear is very good at this sort of thing, so it wouldn't surprise me if he was involved in that. The original plot of this episode was a completely different. In fact, I shouldn't even say it that. The original season finale was completely different. It was supposed to be a resurgent Cardassian invasion. I was reading about this in one of my books. You know, this whole thing where they were going to come back and the Federation was going to have to come back. They were going to bring uh, Patrick Stewart back and the Enterprise to help fight off this Cardassian invasion. And they looked at it and they said, Nope. Now it's funny is the only reason they said no... Well, okay, let me, let me give facts. There is no stated reason why they said no, other than budget issues. My 
personally perceived reason no is because it's kind of a complicated setup that has to do with politics, of course, and of course money. And we do know that DS9 was very low on budget, and it wasn't a showrunner. It would not enjoy the status that Voyager would later get, where Voyager would be capable of basically not doing super hot or going over budget because Voyager did not have threat of cancellation. By contrast, Deep Space Nine had continuous threat of cancellation. In fact, of the three of this era's Star Treks, DS9 is the only one of the three that faced that peril. And as I've said before, it could be argued that's one of the reasons why DS9 stretched out so far. So between the budget issues and the fact that they didn't want to stir the pot too much, they looked at this and said, nope, threw it out completely out the window. I am curious how that would have gone, though. It's clear they were trying to push the Cardassians into a more long-term, you know, series bad guy, kind of like the Klingons for the original, Romulans for TNG, and eventually the Borg over in Voyager. I'm not sure what I would think of that, to be completely honest with you. I'd have to really ponder that. Um, obviously, the show did go in a different direction. I don't feel that's spoiling, because here we are having a deep, integral episode about politics, beliefs, and respect and tolerance, rather than a big, fancy invasion from the Cardassians. And if there was one sentence that explained why I like Deep Space Nine, that one I just said is probably it right there. <laughs> now, this is a very dark episode. In fact, this is an exceptionally dark episode. Uh, more so than most people seem to even think, because this doesn't just cover, you know, willing murder and, and politicking and whatnot, but also... Here in real life, we have had politicians who are part of religious organizations, who have used those religious organizations as a means of gaining power for most of our known human history. I mean, you know, the uh, the Holy Synod. I'm, 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 Synod, I'm probably not even saying that correctly. With, with the Catholic, Catholic Church back in the 1400s, 1500s, and the, the interweaving, you know, religious figures literally being landowners and having their own retinues of fighters and people working for them, basically functioning as a part of the aristocracy, of the government, you know. That's kind of normal here in real life, because it's been normal for literally centuries. In Star Trek, that thing's a little more rare. Usually when we see this kind of thing, it's done to be an obvious allegory. Obviously the religious leaders are obviously evil because blah, 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 right? We're trying to make a point here. But what the villain of this episode, and I'll talk about her in just a second, the villain of this episode, what makes this more evil and more dark, even than the surface level, is she is manipulating a people who have been through hell. This is a woman who is willing to take the suffering and dying of people that she is a member of in order to try and advance her position slightly. Remember, she doesn't even become Kai in this episode. Right? She doesn't she doesn't get her promotion. She she doesn't even if she had taken out her direct opposition as Bur, uh God, I would stumble over his name, Burial. <laughs> I think it's Burial. Vedic Burial, that sounds right. I, I always stumble over that because it sounds a lot like Durail over in Diablo. But anyways, um, even taking him out would not have actually guaranteed her the slot. She has a lot of other competition. Remember the, like, the hundred-strong seat of Vedics, right? For a minor possibility of a chance at a promotion in a situation where she already has significant power and influence, she was willing to usurp and... <sighs> I, I'm coming. I'm failing at coming over in 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 a, in a manner of slimy mischievousness, disgustingly utilize her own people's religious beliefs. Excuse me, spiritual beliefs, in order to advance her own political career. Slightly, one step, just just the one. I, I'm sorry, I, I hate to keep bashing this in. I imagine most of my more cynical or embittered or, or whatever uh, viewers in the audience are like, yeah, and? This just blows, blows me away. Which brings me to the next point I want to talk about. Because this is an interesting move. 
We met Gul Dukat all the way back in Emissary, but we do not meet the actual villain of Deep Space Nine until the season finale. And I have absolutely no doubt that that was not done on purpose, and I'll discuss that in just a moment. It is at the 1 minute and 22 second mark, at least according to my DVD, uh, when we finally meet Win Adami. I actually am not sure I'm pronouncing her name right. I usually just call her Kai Win, but, you know, whatever, Win, the lady in this one. Um, did I write down her actress's name? Oh, shoot, I didn't. I thought I did. Uh, she, anybody who's watched One Floor Over the Cuckoo's Nest might actually recognize her. In fact, would you believe this woman has won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress? Yes, really. She is actually very good at her role. In fact, I would go so far as to say part of the reason that Wynne succeeds so damn much as such a horrifyingly evil villain is because of the strength of the actress. It's an interesting thing to be complimented on, isn't it? Man, you're great at being terrible! But I want to clarify that statement. Now, as we'll discuss when we get to the episode of Waltz and a few future episodes, and I don't want to spoil the future, like I said, I'm trying to be better about that, but... As we'll discuss in the future, there was a plan set out for Deep Space Nine. And then that plan basically didn't go anywhere because, well, remember, they were under the gun. Everything I just talked about, budget issues and cancellation threats and, not a, and basically a lack of general proper support from the studio. So there was a lot of improvising and there was a lot of making it up as we go and there was a lot of, well, passion a lot of real care for the work they put into it. And so Deep Space Nine grew unintentionally into this beautiful, amazing show. But then at some point in the, along the line, the, the showrunners were like, well, hang on, we need to go finish the story that we set out to do. This is why Gold Dukat was introduced in Episary, because the original plan was for Gold Dukat to be the villain of the series. Now, anybody who's seen this series could say that's not really true, and we can and will debate that in the future. You could even argue that Wynne is not the true villain of the series, and we can and will debate that in the future. In my opinion, she is because of two big reasons. Number one, she is a singular point of villainy. She's not an organization. She is not... Excuse me, she's not a concept. She's not a species, like the Borg would be. She is a person. One individual with a tremendous capacity for evil. And that brings me to my second reason. Her villainy is very personal, very treacherous, very slippery, slimy. She is probably one of the best examples of a classic Type 3 villain I have ever seen. She, she actually surpasses the person who made it the Type 3 uh, denominator, uh, uh, Cutler Beckett. Because she is just so incredibly, connivingly, slimily, self-interestedly back-talking, you know, trying to, to twist the words around evil. She is a smug snake. You just want to just... And she is personally responsible for a lot of the garbage that will happen throughout the course of the show. Not in terms of scale. A lot of people I know both personally and online, tend to rate villainy based on scale. You know, one person who accidentally leans on a button and kills a thousand people versus one person who tortures someone to death. I know people who would say the one, the, you know, the thousand's death is actually a more evil person. And I get the mentality about that. I don't agree personally, but I do get that mentality. In that case, Wynn is absolutely not that horrible. I mean, she does what? She blows up one school, de crap, and she arranges for the murder of one man and destroys the life and career of another woman. That's it. That's not big. But there's a level of personal misery and just messed upness about it. Because here's the thing, and let me, if I can explain my mentality just really quickly here. One of the things that I've said many times, and is true in real life, is the more distanced you get, the easier it is to do horrible things to someone, right? You know, what's, as, as the example I like to say, what's easier? Pressing a button on a console or strangling someone to death with your bare hands? And I don't mean which, which causes you less physical effort. I mean, which is easier mentally? Which is easier emotionally? Right? Ergo, when you're the kind of person who is both willing and capable of getting nice up and personal with people, 
with a very personal level of villainy, you tend to be more of a messed up individual since you're okay with that kind of a thing. And that's why Wynn can go burn. <sighs> but I digress. So, um, <clears throat> let's talk about Leela really quick. Now, first of all, Leela is obviously a failed character because she's not a Cyclops and her hair is completely the wrong color. But in addition to this, they wanted to have this thing where she was going to be presented as another recurring secondary character. You know what I mean, right? Uh, maybe you actually don't. Um, this is actually a very common thing in Star Trek. Well, they have a particular extra who shows up regularly. I've talked about this concept over on Voyager, actually. In other words, they're not really a guest star. They usually don't even have lines, or, or maybe they'll just have a couple of lines. But it's the same actor or actress playing the same role in the background regularly. This is something Babylon 5 does extensively. So the idea is to give you that feeling of, oh, familiarity. Yeah, it's that same character, right? Now, DS9 would struggle with this very concept for most of its existence, and it gets to the point where DS9 basically just adds more and more cast to the overall ensemble cast, the main cast, rather than trying to have that recurring guest star thing, because they just kept having issues with this. If you remember, we've already had this problem with the security officer whose name I don't even remember, the guy who was supposed to be the foil for Odo. He appeared in, what, two episodes? Anyways, Leela was intended to be another thing like this. And this was done on purpose to play against audience expectations. The idea that this was a recurring background character who we would have already seen and so kind of recognized as being there, and then, oh my gosh, she's the killer. But she was only very briefly in duet and replaced, because uh, she was supposed to be that actress, but then they replaced her back in uh, Dramatis Personae, I think. God, I can't remember which one happened. But anyways, the point being, it fell completely flat on its face, so... There's really no murder mystery because it's like, who could have possibly done this? Oh, by the way, here's a here's two guest stars you've never seen before, right? I mean, I hate to be all meta here, but it's kind of obvious who the murder problem really is. That being said, I will talk more about the reveal of the murder thing a little bit later. Now, I also want to talk about that B-plot I mentioned, the subplot thing. That was very brilliantly done. It is an extreme slow boil. We don't even, it doesn't even get to the point of murder, and I wrote it down until the 22-minute mark in the episode. Now, that's obviously on the DVD, so that's ignoring uh, commercials, but, you know, basically over halfway through the episode until it finally is like, da-da-da! Because the B-plot has always been about, where the heck's my tool? I even wrote it down, it was his EJ7 is missing. That's kind of weird. I wonder where it's going to be. Maybe it's over here. And it's just kind of in the background. And they do it perfectly. They don't draw too much attention to it. But it does still come across as its own B-plot until it slams directly into the A-plot. And I love the way they interweave the two. It is very... I don't have much else to say about it other than the fact that I love O'Brien and that he's awesome. I have a couple more things to say about O'Brien later. Moving on. Uh, damn it, i got to talk about the school thing now, don't I? I don't want to. The main writer of this episode was actually raised uh, Catholic, in a Catholic schooling system. And this gentleman made a very clear opinion, which I admit I agree with. That opinion is schooling, religious schooling, clear segregation. Clear division, right? Shunk. In other words, the idea that there's nothing wrong with you learning about your spiritual beliefs or your customs or your traditions, but that belongs at home or with your own little circle, your church, for example, or your, your mosque or your religious school, right? That's, that's where that belongs, you go to, you know, regular school to get the regular education, the default education, the stuff that applies regardless of what you believe. You know, 5 plus 5 equaling 10 is not something that's a particularly spiritual question. Now, I do understand the complexity of this situation, and in fact, Keiko herself brings this up, because there's a certain point at which it stops being quite so clearly distinct. For example... Stating that, I'm trying to think of something really basic, 
I don't know, warp theory, for example, to use a Star Trek example, is something that's pretty clearly delineated as, yeah, okay, you know, the matter-antimatter ratio. We were just talking about that over in TNG, or at least from my perspective we were. Um, you know, the matter-antimatter ratio always has to be one-to-one. -one. This is for pretty basic stuff. There's, there's no gray area here. There's no spiritual possibility here. What about theory of evolution? Uh, and I'm not talking about the, the, the idea of evolution existing, because obviously evolution does exist. I mean the theory of how it has been applied in species propagation. What about the nature of the cosmos and where things came from? What about a wormhole that happens to include some aliens who happen to be <laughs> perceived as prophets and deities amongst a people, right? It is, as Keiko points out, pretty easy to run into those kind of gray areas. Now, I'll talk more about that specific thing when we get... Well, screw it, I'll just talk about it now. I already brought it up. So, Wynne pulls some politics, which I will discuss later because it's not relevant to this point. Keiko's response is, well, you know, your third solution doesn't work. Because Wynne's option is, just don't teach about the wormhole. That's cool. And honestly, that's such an obvious third solution. I'm a little amazed nobody actually brought it up before. Keiko's opposition to that is that she is, wanted to become a teacher to share knowledge with people, not to withhold knowledge from people. Okay, that sounds good, but uh, obviously there's going to be some real, real, relativistic limits to that. Keiko is not teaching sex ed. Or is she? God, I hope not. Keiko is not teaching sacrificial rituals of the Klingon Empire. Keiko is not teaching some of the practices of slavery or forced prostitution of Earth's own history, right? Now, forgive me for going a little bit to extremes on this point, please. I'm not trying to say that she is wrong, because actually she's not responding to Wynne's question. That's why I wanted to discuss this later. There's a separate, separate half to this argument that we'll discuss later when it comes up. The relevant point is Keiko presents her argument as if trying to withhold any kind of knowledge is a bad thing, which I don't agree with because it's going to an extreme. There are things that probably should be kept out of school. And now, I admit some of my own opinion comes into this. Like I said earlier, I am of the opinion that a lot of education rests on the parents. And obviously there's going to be some situations where that's not ideally possible. But the point remaining... You shouldn't have, in my opinion, you shouldn't have to learn certain things from your teacher. Your parents should be there to do that for you. And you notice I keep using the word should. So, for me, the idea of taking the third option here, not counting the politicking or the other half of the argument, which again we'll discuss later, is a perfectly valid solution. Just don't talk about the wormhole. Bam! Done. Problem over. I suppose the biggest problem with this whole situation is the idea that most of the people involved don't seem to want to get along. You know what I mean? It feels like... I'm saying this wrong. It feels like the, pe the most of the people who are actually pushing the issue really pushing the buttons on the issue, don't get along, Go, don't want to get along, don't want to find a common ground, don't want to have a respectful solution in the middle. Wynne herself is a good example of this. Frankly, so is Kira. Kira's portrayal in this episode is very interesting, and yet at the same time, I don't find it inconsistent. Remember, Kira has already been portrayed as someone who is very spiritual, and it's very easy to see why someone who is very spiritual could also be very religious. And I'm making that point because, arguably, this is the episode where Kira stops being very religious, but continues to be very spiritual. And that will continue to be a part of her character going forward, where she starts to see the divide between those two things, as I have posited earlier. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but my point is... Early on, when she confronts Keiko about this thing, her response is that she believes that Keiko's approach and how she's discussing the wormhole specifically, because it's all focused on the issue of the wormhole and the prophets themselves, she believes that her response is basically absent 
that it's absent the necessary context, or that it's showcasing the wrong philosophy. In other words, Kira's mentality is relatively valid. Relatively. Because Kira's mentality here, and it's not as well presented as it could be, is by deliberately phrasing things in such a way, and by deliberately showcasing things in such a way, you are trying to, without saying it, say that they are not the prophets, that they are not some great spiritual thing. Right? And that is true, because that is Keiko's approach. We see that in the way that she acts throughout this episode. Keiko is pretty clearly, no, they're just aliens. Jake Sisko himself is the only one who actually states this outright in this episode. He flat out calls the idea that, that worshipping them or calling them prophets is, and I quote, stupid. But Kira herself, obviously, despite her perspective, once again, does not seem to really want to middle ground with Keiko. And Mikeko does not want to middle ground with her. And of course, Wynn is an incredibly evil, horrible person. So you see why we have this issue. Now, I had to phrase my statement very carefully because you'll notice most of the crowd, and they do a good job of this, most of the crowd kind of sways in whichever direction is currently winning in the argument. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, well, no, I suppose I'll br I brought it up. I'll talk about it now. I just keep jumping around in the timeline of this episode. There's a bit later where Wynne makes her first political mistake. I really want to cover Wynne's political in, in this episode, politicking, excuse me, where, uh, you know, she denounces Cisco, denounces Starfleet. You are soulless. You are in darkness and blah, blah, blah. And then Cisco says, nope, you just made your first mistake. And he's right. She has actually been very conniving and very well done, politically speaking, this whole time. But the problem is Wynne is not actually a good politician. And I'll, again, I'll discuss her more in a minute once I finally get around to it. I swear to God I will. But Cisco talks circles around her. Because he points out the truth. That we've been working with these people. Seven months. It's basically been a year. Over seven months they've been working together, talking together, growing friendships, understanding, learning. They've actually been doing little subtle touches throughout the series. Remember in the episode, um, God, it was one of the earlier ones. It was the one where Oda was being framed for murder by Bajoran dude. I forget which episode that was. It was earlier on. And there's this little bit where these, there's these two Bajoran security guards standing in defense of Oda's room. And then a Starfleet guy kind of nervously gets right up there in between them, kind of gives them like a little glance, like, okay, we got this, and then stands side by side with them. There's been a lot of little stuff like that in season one. You can't tell me that was done unintentionally. A lot of DS9 was an accident. But I'm pretty sure that slow bond between Starfleet and the Bajorans was very much deliberate, given how key and integral it is to most of the series. And to the original intent of the series, I might add. So, Sisko appeals to that bond and says, Yeah, no, we've, we've got each other's backs. We're not evil. See, the thing is, Sisko is the correct person in this argument, and he is designed to be. Keiko has no desire to reach middle ground. Kira has no desire to reach middle ground. Wynne is incredibly evil. Sisko is the one who actually respects the other side, who is actually willing to say, I don't agree with a damn thing you're saying. So, you want to go get drinks later? Because that's basically the attitude right there. It's an attitude I try to adopt myself in real life. Don't always succeed. But that's the idea. Man, wow, I cannot even understand how you believe that. So, I was thinking uh, we could go get some Overwatch, you know, maybe go, go play a few matches. I'll get pizza. Um, oh, you want pineapple? Then you must die. Point being. Well, I've hinted at it all over the place. Let's go ahead and frickin' talk about the goddamn win. So, win... When I'm trying to think of the perfect analogy for this. Wynn is someone who, she's a boxer, okay? In a local town circuit, all right? She's never fought anyone outside her town. And she is the best in her town. She's the champion of that town and its boxing circuit, Okay. 
What happens in this episode is she is trying to push beyond the boundaries of that. Because Wynne has her own little power base. She does. Even this episode showcases that, and future episodes will as well. So she has her own power base, her own political arena. And she's good at what she does back there. But when she starts fighting people a little bit above her weight class, well, then she starts to get a little uneasy. And this happens several times in this episode. She portrays herself as someone who understands exactly what to say, but only in an amateur perspective. Anybody who watched my lore runs of Final Fantasy XII knows what I'm talking about, the difference between an expert politician and an amateur politician. And Wynn is an amateur politician. Everything she does is blatant and obvious. She even phrases it so particularly. There's, I, I wrote down a couple of her quotes. For example, do the prophets belong in your school is a good example of this. Now, that is phrased in a very specific way. That is not what she claims to be asking. It's not even what she's actually asking. It's a statement deliberately meant to make it so that the answer then says no, and therefore, by nature of that, feels like a rejection of the Bajoran faith itself, which it is not. I am actually with Keiko on this one point. The prophets do not belong in that school for the same reason that certain other topics do not belong in that school. That's your parents' jobs. Do that home. In fact, Keiko has a great quote, and I, I have it up here on my second monitor. <clears throat> and I quote, No, I don't teach Bajoran spiritual beliefs. That's your job. Mine is to open children's minds to history, literature, mathematics, and science. Now, again, Keiko doesn't really go as neutrally here as she could, and she is not trying to be understanding about this. In fact, in that very scene I just quoted, Keiko is very aggressive about it, and logically so, because she took the bait, because Wynne is deliberately provoking her as she provokes others, just like that quote I just mentioned, do the prophets belong in your school? And of course the answer is no. Look how many kids leave after that. There's five kids left after. I didn't see Nog there, though, so I guess there's six, but whatever. Later on, she says something that makes me want to just strangle her. This is Wynn still. We're still talking about Wynn. Let me be the first to... Let me be the one to make the first concession. (sighs) I'm sorry, that is so obvious. That is so goddamn amateur. I'm actually in shock that she got away with that. That is literally her walking up and saying, oh, I'll be the good guy. I'll reach out to you. Because two things are accomplished by that. First of all, you make make yourself seem more reasonable. And second, you make your opposition seem less reasonable. Especially if you deliberately offer them a concession you know they will not take. With this concession given, and them having denied it, now you seem even more reasonable. I tried to make peace. I tried to reach out. This is such such obvious politicking. And if you're noticing kind of a trend, it's that Kai Wynn is not a spiritual person. We will discuss this as we continue to go through her character throughout the course of the series, but I am firm of the belief that she just isn't a spiritual person at all. That she is a very religious person absent spiritualism. And in my opinion, please note the words I'm using, in my opinion, that's where we get some real problems. In real life, too. Because, as I said before, there's some natural overlap between religious and spiritual. But when we have just religious with no actual connection there, with no real belief or faith system, when you're just playing the politics or holding the role and gaining the benefits out of it, well, now we've got a problem. Now, one thing I want to also credit this episode... Oh, sorry, I'm sorry. One little quick thing. I'm looking at the notes here. Uh, One other little thing. I mentioned the It's Stupid line from Jake Sisko when Jake is talking to Sisko. And one of the things I really like about that is it's very Babylon 5. No, it's not. It's not stupid. I, I love the way he basically schools his son on that matter. You don't agree with that. You don't have to see that. It's a different perspective. They are aliens who can literally see the future, and you're objecting to them being called the prophets. 
you know? I, I am kind of with Cisco on that. Now, obviously, there's some other reasons for Cisco, the emissary, to be having this perspective, but it remains a valid point for the reason of respect. Again, Cisco's pretty much the only one in this episode who legitimately respects the other side and actively wants a compromise, wants to, to find some kind of common ground here. Which brings me to Burial, the Lord of Pain. He's got these spike things, and God, he hits like a truck. I hate fight. Burial is a fascinating character in this episode. Now, I don't think this is spoiling anything to mention he is also a recurring character and will show up in the future. I'm not going to talk about that at all. That's kind of a separate thing. What is very important to note right now is that Burial is still a politician. However, this is getting into the realm of opinion again, but looking at him, especially in this episode, it looks much more so that Burial is a politician, religious, who does have a spiritual faith, who does actually legitimately believe what he preaches, or at least part of it, right? That doesn't mean he's not a politician. That doesn't mean he's not willing to play politics. Usually, fiction in general, and especially Star Trek, will do this. They'll have the reasonable figure, whether it's you know organizational or military or religious or whatever, and then the unreasonable one. The unre excuse me, the unreasonable one and the reasonable one, and they're just night and day, right? Now you could argue that applies still to Burial and to Win, and I'm not going to argue against that. The difference is both are still clearly politicians. He still talks around Cisco. He's, he's, he's more amiable. He's more affable. You know, he's more willing to get along with Cisco, more willing to be polite and open and honest with Cisco. But more than once, in fact, more than twice in this episode, he still plays at politics. When he is first introduced, he starts talking about the Vedic Assembly, the 104 or whatever the many it is, right? and how it's difficult to properly make your voice heard. This ends up being a major plot point, not just in this episode, but in the future. I mean, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Remember, it's not just the political organization of the Bajoran nation that is just getting started at actually being a functional organization for the first time in its functional history after the occupation, but it's the first time the religious organization is starting to be organized. Because before this, it was just faith. Now, I'm skipping ahead a little bit because in future episodes they make this more clear, but it was just faith. Yeah, they have Vedics and whatnot, but that was just a term for someone who helps other people with their belief, with their faith, with their spiritualism. That was it. There was no tears. There was no aristocracy. There was no political infrastructure. They were all equal in chains. It is when the Federation finally managed to apply the proper political pressure, thanks to chain of commands, in order to push the Cardassians out. And, and, and it's worth noting that the, the Bajorans get credit for that as well. So I'm sorry, I don't want to sound dis disingenuous. The Bajorans and the Federation pushed the Cardassians out. And now they need a government. And now they want to organize their religion. It is actually fairly logical unfortunately or otherwise, that these two things would then be married together in Bajoran culture because their faith was one of the most powerful, strongest things that helped them keep going throughout all of that garbage, right? It makes sense. But, <laughs> I mean, have you ever seen a fledgling organization? Have you ever seen statecraft in action? It's really fascinating in its own horrifying way. And I mean this with sincerity. It's engaging to learn about. Now, I've only ever seen fictional statecraft uh, in, in my life, both in debate uh, things and all role-playing games and stuff like that, and, of course, within analyzed works of fiction. But you can just see all these Vedics, all these people who are used to helping, basically being leaders without really intending to, suddenly taking up mantles of real leadership, and none of them can really agree. How, why would they? I mean, they all agree that Bajorans are cool, right? You know, I'll, I'll bring the glasses here. Yeah, yeah, it's just, yeah, yeah, we're all, hey, Bajorans, we're cool, right? But the guy who was responsible, just to name some examples here, the guy who was responsible for the farm output under the yoke of Cardassian oppression 
And the guy who was responsible for the mining operations where they were pulling the ore out, or the woman who was responsible for trying to make sure that, that the, the, the townships still had running water and food under the Cardassian yoke. These people are going to have vastly different perspectives and vastly different opinions. It could be argued, although this is entering the realm of total blind speculation, that these Bajoran Vedics, each one, could be an entirely separate political party. So it makes sense that the smarter of the Vedics, or the more politically attuned of these Vedics, would start actually playing at politics to make sure that their voices are heard. This is what both Beryl and Wynne do in this episode. Beryl does it with a personal connection to the emissary. I was invited. He, this is the second time he plays at politics. I was invited in for an inspection. Maybe I can help. Personal invitation from the emissary, right? Personal interest in trying to help Bajoran interests. And then his third play at politics is when he offers to go pray with Wynne who I remind you is his opposition both politically in the religion and ideologically with regards to the school issue. But he reaches out the hand to her and says, let's go pray together at the ruins of the school. Boom, boom, boom. All three of those are political maneuvers to make him noticed, to get him attention in the Vedics. And of course, Wynne is playing at politics too. This whole thing actually is two efforts on her behalf. Obviously, the assassination plot to get rid of Beryl. And given what I just told you, it's so obvious why she'd want to get rid of him, since he's probably one of the only other Vedics actually playing at politics, right? Not just getting into a room and shouting at each other. And it makes her get noticed. Her idea, rather than being invited by the emissary and blah, 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 she shows up and makes an issue of the schooling thing, uses the school issue as a rallying point, as a point of contention that you can point to and say, are you pro-profit pro, pro schooling or anti-profit schooling? And I bet the way I'm phrasing this sounds familiar to a lot of you out there. Because this is what politicians do. They pick up a flag, one flag, and they say, bam, I think this about this. And they rally their support and they rally their party doctrine around that. Whether they actually believe it or not. And it's pretty clear Wynne does not give a crap. Why would she? So Baraya plays at politics, too. Meanwhile, the B-plot is going along, and there's a great scene. It's probably the only Leela scene I really like between Leela and O'Brien. Um, is this... This is actually before we officially know Leela's behind it, even though we've probably figured it out by now. And Leela's just sitting there with O'Brien. And they just start talking very naturally. And she asks this question, which just stuck with me. Did you know him well? And O'Brien's response, no, not really. It's a nice little human moment. She murdered that man. She did it to cover her tracks for her, <laughs> for her faith. Remember, faith isn't always a good thing either. So she murdered this man. And uh, Although you could argue she did it for her religion, but that, that's getting debatable. The point being, she's the bad guy. But you could tell that she doesn't really she she doesn't feel nothing from it. She 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 comes across as more sympathetic than Win because she obviously cares about the fact that she's doing these things and obviously doesn't want to. In fact, she even pleads with Win, okay, this is gonna screw my life over. Please don't make me do this. Even though that's a little bit self-centered, it shows that she's not a complete mindless drone, or at least not completely evil. But I also found that conversation between O'Brien and Leela very telling because they talk about Federation types and Bajoran types not really hanging out. And I like that. Too often, and I've done this in the past before, fiction will try to portray um, division or strife between two groups of people in a more literal, obvious, overt way. You know, riots, violence, etc. The idea that, you know... To use an analogy, in the cafeteria, the Bajorans sit at one table and the Starfleet crew sit at the other. I like that, because it still portrays that division. 
that we're not quite gelling together yet thing. But it does it in a very subtle and calm way. It's just social cliques at that point. And, of course, it's funny because the episode itself points out how individuals have started bypassing this barrier, Kira and Sisko being one example, but obviously Leela and O'Brien being another one. Because, of course, O'Brien's going to get along with Leela. He's O'Brien! I'm sorry, something about that really amuses me. That, of course, of all the Starfleet people that a Bajoran would get along with, even a literal murderer Bajoran, it'd be frickin' O'Brien, right? So, Cork talks about his experience, such as it is, with Bajoran religious leaders, which I find very funny. I'm not going to get into that. And then he's honest about the murder thing, which I like. This is the scene where Wynn screws up. I mentioned this uh, earlier. Oh, I, I forgot to talk about the other side of the argument, didn't I? I'm sorry. Let's get back to Wynn politicking. I said I'd cover this. I remembered. I remembered. Wynn talks about how, uh, you know, let me make the first concession, right? Don't talk about the prophets in school. Now, as I made clear the last time we brought up this argument, I kind of agree with that mentality. However... Keiko, A, does not want to, to meet on the middle ground here, as we've already covered, but B, I'd like to think, I could be wrong about this, I'd like to think that Keiko sees through the politicking of this. Because this is just Win trying to play at politics. It's basically a Kobe, uh, uh, it's, wrong, it's a Xanatos uh, uh, gamble, gambit, there we go, Xanatos gambit, cod. <laughs> because if she offers, don't, don't teach the prophets in school, and Keiko acquiesces, then it is Wynne who seems like the peacemaker. She's the one who made the offer, after all. Wynne gets the brownie points of having solved the solution, and Wynne gets to bring this up later when something else comes up. Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. You're, you're saying that Bajorans evolved from gray goo. Let's, let's talk about this. Maybe this shouldn't be in schools. You know, One of those issues that becomes a little bit more gray than aliens inside of a wormhole. The other way she wins is if Keiko says no, which is what Keiko actually does, because now when, as I said earlier, appears to be the peacemaker. So that's the other side of that argument I wanted to mention, that, that Win had basically shoved Keiko into a no-win scenario so that one way or another, Win would win politically. God, I hate her name. <laughs> Wynne would succeed and get political points one way or the other. Now... Later on, I mentioned how she's an amateur. Later on, she says, she phrases her statements so damn carefully, is the emissary holding me responsible for this bombing? And Cisco doesn't rise, basically he doesn't take the bait. She is phrasing that in a way so that he has to backtrack and say, oh, no, of course not. Instead he says, no, the commander of this station is, and just doubles down on her face. And that's when she decides to double down back. That's when she shows, really, that she is the amateur politician. That's when she tries to hammer him back. I've already talked about this, because I already covered this earlier. But that's when she tries to hammer him with the, you're evil, you're the devil, and basically loses a lot of her support. And I think she knew that, which is probably why she pushed forward with the assassination deal, despite the fact that it became a lot riskier. Also, uh... That's the exact moment at which we find out that Leela is the one behind it, even though we already guessed it. There's a, they make it super clear. They don't even try to hide it. Wynn turns to look at Leela. Leela looks at Wynn. The two nod at each other. Yep, yeah, okay, we get it. But one thing I like, that was pretty obvious, but they do a slightly more subtle thing later. There's a scene where Sisko is on like one side of the screen, and O'Brien's on the other side of the screen. And the two of them are looking at each other and talking to each other about the runabout and how they figured it out. In the background is Leela, almost dead center. It's a nice shot. It's good blocking. And as they're talking, I forget the exact sentence, but they say something, and that makes her go... And she just looks up for a second, and then she goes back to her work. Very subtle, but great stuff, because obviously, you know, it just showcases it like that. Um... And then, <laughs> you know what, I'm not going to go off on Wynn any more than I already have. Wynn has this speech to Leela, you know, we must all sacrifice for the prophets. 
I hate to quote sci-fi debris on this one, but uh, you ever notice how most people in fiction who talk about sacrifice don't actually end up sacrificing anything? So the attack happens. I love O'Brien. Comini is so great. I love his portrayal when as soon as he looks at things, it says, and it just, his body language and his tone immediately shift. Like, ah. Uh, because in that moment, he realizes. He figures out that it's Leela. She's the saboteur. She's the murderess. And he, it's just, oh, really? <laughs> I love how he portrays that. And, you know, and then they, they catch her and blah, blah, blah. The last thing I want to talk about, because I don't have much to say about the coda of this episode. The last thing I want to talk about is that when Leela goes to assassinate Beryl, you'll notice Beryl stares at her in the face and doesn't flinch. I only bring that up because, and again, this might be entering headcanon territory, but I like the idea that the Vedics, all the currently living Vedics, who were all spiritual guiders and leaders during the occupation, don't really flinch. Because the only way they could ever be that kind of a position and role successfully under such oppressive and nightmarish circumstances is if they were used to people shooting at them or hurting them, or yelling at them, or killing them, or torturing them on a regular basis. It was an, a subtle point. I don't think it was really done deliberately, but if it was, it's a nice point, and I give the episode credit for that. One other thing I want to point out. The school issue is never resolved. Did you notice that? Believe it or not, I actually like that, because of two reasons. One that's very Deep Space Nine. There are several times where Deep Space Nine will bring up a complicated, complex dilemma and then deliberately not solve it so that we can think for ourselves and how we deal with it, a very Babylon 5 approach. And the second reason is because solving the dilemma was never the point of this episode. The point of this episode is not, we're friends now. The point of this episode is, we have started to become friends now. And I like that. That's all I got. Season 1. Wow, I forgot how many fewer episodes there were in DS9 Season 1 than TNG. So we're going to keep going through Season 1 TNG for the next few weeks. But starting next week, we are going to go ahead and start Season 2 of Deep Space Nine.